Amen. Well, good morning, church. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you are new to West Haven, we are nearing the end of our series titled The Parables of Jesus, Wisdom for Life. Uh, We've observed that Jesus loved to teach using parables, and he used these stories as a way to illustrate a heavenly truth. And we have found throughout this series that Jesus gives us much wisdom for our life through these parables. Now, last week we took a break, we celebrated Christmas, we marveled at the incarnation, and we reflected on the profound truth that God entered our world as a human being. And we also know that Jesus entered this world with a purpose, to bring redemption, to bring salvation to anyone who would believe in him. You see, the thrust of the Gospels, of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, indeed, the thrust of all of Scripture leads us to one place, the cross. It's at the cross where the depth of God's love and the fullness of His plan for redemption become most fully revealed. And so if your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 19, you're going to notice that the parable we're looking at today, which is from verse 11 to verse 27, comes right before Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' eyes have always been directed towards the cross, but right now it's like they are laser beams. And as he tells this story, he's in Jericho. He is 18 miles from Jerusalem. That's about a six-hour walk. He is close. And it's in the context of Jesus drawing near to the cross that he tells us this parable. And so let's turn to God's Word again. We're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, Right now, we're not going to read the entire parable. We're just going to read the first verse, which will provide some context for us as we set up this parable. And so let's look at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So Jesus kind of has two main purposes in teaching this parable. And we're going to look at the first purpose very quickly. We don't even have any points in the bulletin. Um, but the first, misunder- the first purpose of this parable is to correct a misunderstanding. His followers expected Jesus to be a victorious and reigning king. And Jesus is almost to Jerusalem where his followers believed that his kingdom would appear. They had high expectations. And the closer that Jesus moved to Jerusalem, the more excited they became. And why shouldn't they? They've they've seen Jesus do incredible things. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen him uh, heal people. He's seen them uh, feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread and fish. And, And he's even raised the dead. And each miraculous act that Jesus did, it it added fuel to their anticipation or it it solidified their belief in his power. And we see their excitement if we look at his triumphal entry in verse 38 where Jesus enters enters Jerusalem and people shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're excited, right? For their king has come. And indeed the kingdom had come, but it had not yet come in the fullness of its final glory. And so one purpose Jesus uses this parable for is to correct a false expectation. 
that the kingdom they are expecting will not be realized for quite some time. And so he tells us a parable. And let's, let's look at this, the first couple of verses of this parable now. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minus and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So, quite simply, as we consider what divine truth this story might be teaching us, we can first recognize that Jesus himself is the nobleman. And I think that will become increasingly clear as we walk through the rest of this parable. But the nobleman is going to go away, he says. He's going to go away, but he is going to come back. And like the nobleman, Jesus is going to go away for a time. And during that time, he will receive his kingdom, and then he will return. Now, part of, parts of this story would have sounded very familiar to the people who were hearing it. They would have had a real-life example of some of these events actually happening. This process of a nobleman traveling to a distant country to receive a kingdom would have been familiar to them. Around the time of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great died. Now, it was widely expected that his son, Archelaus, would take his throne. And he actually began to rule as if he were the king, but there was a problem. Only the Roman emperor Caesar could validate his kingship. And so Archelaus traveled to Rome where he was expected to be crowned king. And so the hearers of this story would have been familiar with this concept of a royal figure going away for a time to receive a kingdom. And so Jesus is trying to teach them that the kingdom you expect me to bring when I walk into Jerusalem is not going to immediately appear. Before that kingdom can come, Jesus must go away for a time. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his absence. He's telling them that there is going to be a delay between his departure and his return. And so, church, that is clearly, obviously, the when that we currently live, right? We live in this period of the delay. Now, for the purpose of this sermon, I'm saying that we are living in the meantime. Jesus has come. Jesus has, will come again. And, and the second purpose of this parable is to teach us how do we live in the meantime. Right now, how do we live? And the first thing that we will see is that we are given work to do. We're given work. In this parable, we see ten slaves who are each given a mina. Now, a mina is equivalent to about three months of wages. It's about a hundred days. It's, it's not a large amount, but it's not insignificant either. And the nobleman, he instructs his servants to do business with this mina until he returns. In other words, while I am gone, I do not want you to be idle. I am, I am giving you this mine, and I want you to go out and do something with it. Now, this is easy enough for us to understand, I think. For example, I have a retirement account, 
And when I put money into that account, I expect the company who manages that account to get to work, right? I expect them to analyze market performance, to mitigate risk, to minimize fees, and, and I expect them to do all of those things so that in 25 or 30 years or whatever that number is from now, when I enter a time of retirement, I have funds available to live and to continue doing gospel ministry. Now, this general concept makes sense to us, right? Now, this parable is ultimately teaching us a heavenly truth. And so we have to ask the question, what does that mina represent? And I'm going to suggest that the mina represents the gospel. And here's why. This parable in Luke is very often compared to the parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel. Now, there are uh, a lot of similarities, but there are some very significant differences as well. In the parable of the talents, each servant received a different amount of money depending on his ability. And we very practically from that parable come to understand that God has made each and every one of us differently. He's gifted us differently. And not only do we have different giftings, but we have different amounts of gifting that we can deploy in service to God. But here in this parable... Each servant is given the same amount, the same single mina. And so we see that the point of this parable is different than the parable that we see in Matthew's gospel. We begin to understand that the point of this parable is less to do about giftedness and more to do about faithfulness. Regardless of our gifts, we are all called to be faithful with what we have been given. And we have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to put the gospel of Jesus Christ to work. We are to invest the gospel so that when Jesus returns, we will be able to show him what his gospel has done. I read a, st a statistic that the average adult makes around 35,000 decisions every single day. Now, some of those decisions are usually inconsequential, right? Decisions like stretching your arms out to prevent a muscle cramp. But other decisions are much more important. Every day we make decisions that show us whether we are investing the gospel or not. Decisions like showing kindness to a colleague or extending forgiveness to someone who has wronged us or investing time in, in meaningful conversations. All of these things become acts of gospel faithfulness the way we handle our resources or the way we treat our neighbors or the way we approach challenges all of these decisions reflect how well we are stewarding the gospel in our lives investing the gospel also includes and involves sharing the gospel are we sharing the gospel it's powerful in fact paul says it is the power of god for salvation to all who would believe in each conversation, within every office and classroom or courtroom, do we consciously strive to honor God through our decisions? This is the essence of conducting the business of the gospel. Letting the light of our faith shine through our actions. Now, we all do this differently, right? We all have different gifts and different talents, but we're all called to faithfulness. Now, before we move on to the next point, let's notice another group of people in this parable. So far, we've looked at the noblemen, and we've looked at the slaves. But we also have this group of citizens who hated the noblemen. 
who did not want the nobleman to be king. A little bit ago, I started to share about Archelaus. When Archelaus traveled to Rome, he was not alone. In fact, there was an influential group of people who very much opposed his rule and his reign. And for good reason, Archelaus was a wicked man. We most certainly cannot draw parallels between the character of Archelaus and the character of Jesus. Jesus is righteous, Archelaus is wicked, but the parallel we can make is this. There will be a group of people that oppose the nobleman. There will be a group of people that oppose Jesus. Jesus, remember, is preparing us for Jerusalem. He is preparing us for the cross. And though we see his triumphal entry at the end of this chapter... It doesn't take long for those shouts of praise to become shouts proclaiming, crucify him. Not every person desires Jesus to reign over them. I met with a friend earlier this week and we briefly talked about Christmas and the incarnation and we discussed how much we loved reading John chapter 1 and and Hebrew chapter 1 and while those texts aren't traditional Christmas texts for us we really appreciate and love those chapters during Christmas and, and but in John's gospel he writes this in that first chapter there was the true light and for the sake of clarity John is referring there to Jesus the true light which was coming into the world enlightens every man he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him the natural bend of the human heart is that we do not want or desire or feel like we need a savior it's by God's good grace that we come to believe in him and trust in him but not everybody will do so Some will hate and rebel against Jesus. And because of our loyalty to Jesus, they will hate and rebel against us as well. In fact, the work that we are called to do will be all the more challenging because of the opposition against us. And yet, the call remains the same. Be faithful. Be faithful with what you have been given. And we have been given work to do. Jesus has come. Jesus will come again. And in the meantime, we are in the business of doing gospel work. And as we continue in this passage, we see that when Jesus returns, we will be evaluated. We'll be evaluated. We're going to see that the faithful will be rewarded. The faithful will be rewarded. Let's continue reading in this parable, starting with verse 15 now. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minus. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. So the king has returned, and with him he has brought his rewards. And his rewards will be given in measure to those who have been faithful. God tells us to put the gospel to work, and because the gospel is powerful, God's kingdom grows. When Jesus returns, we will give an account 
for how and what we have done with the gospel. We'll give an account for what we have done with what he has entrusted us with. And we see the evaluation of this first slave. Like, like every other slave, he was given one mina. And he comes to the master and he says, your mina has made ten minas more. Now, that's a 1,000% increase. I think Dave Ramsey could learn something from this person. Um, that's a massive return. Now, some of you might be thinking, I've been faithful for years and years, and for one, I've seen nowhere close to that type of return on my gospel work. I, I can't even say I've seen 10% or, or whatever that metric is. I've not seen the fruit that I would expect from something as powerful as the gospel. You see, this parable is interesting because we do see tangible outcomes as a result of the slaves doing business with the mina. And I think we should expect to see tangible results as well. However, we also must realize that there is a direct that while there is a direct correlation, there is also a discrepancy between faithfulness and visible outcomes. The measure of success does not always align with immediate results. You might plant the seeds of faith in a young person who may not make a profession of faith until long after you've gone to meet the Lord. Sometimes the impact of our faithfulness is hidden to us, but it's not hidden to God. We should be encouraged by that, that God sees all of it, and even when we give an account for how well we did with his gospel work, God already has a perfect, fuller knowledge of that work. And so we're urged to trust in the inerrant power of the gospel, knowing that God's word does not return void. And though we might not be able to immediately perceive the work that the gospel is doing, our role is to remain the same, faithful. Isn't it crazy? Our faithful actions, no matter how seemingly insignificant, they contribute to God's unfolding story of redemption. Isn't it amazing that God would choose to use us to build his kingdom? And look what God told that first slave. Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. This is so amazing. The, the first two slaves, upon presenting the mina to the nobleman, said, your mina. They didn't take credit for the mina. Your mina has made ten and five mina more. They knew that the mina they were given was not ultimately theirs. And so they didn't take credit for the growth of that mina. And even though it wasn't theirs, God rewards them nonetheless. In a reflection of his grace, he says, well done, good slave. Consider this very simple truth, church. Faithfulness brings pleasure to God. Church, we are given the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He merely calls us to be faithful. And not only that, he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live obediently. All of this is from God. All of this is of God. All the credit goes to God. But this is the amazing part. 
When he comes again, he will reward the faithful. (laughs) And if we compare these first two slaves, we see that there are varying degrees of reward or varying degrees of responsibility. And, And notice that the degree of reward is proportionate to the degree of faithfulness. The, the first servant made 10 minus and he was given 10 cities and the second servant made 5 minus and he was given 5 cities. And, and so we see that greater faithfulness now will result in greater privilege in heaven. The, the reward is proportionate, but the reward is also astonishingly disproportionate. The first slave presented to the nobleman 11 minus in total. That's about three years' wages. Do a mental exercise, this is a very imperfect illustration, but do a mental exercise and think about the capital that would be required to purchase a single city. As of September of this year, the Kansas City Chiefs were valued at $4.3 billion. You're not even going to purchase a block in the bad part of town for 11 minus, and yet the reward to this servant was 11 cities. Now we're talking about heaven here, what are the cities. There's mystery here. And every scholar, theologian, and pastor has different ideas, but the main point is this. When we are faithful with the little, God will bless us abundantly. And the reward will be astonishingly disproportionate to our efforts. These first two servants, they joyfully anticipated the return of the nobleman, and they were abundantly rewarded. But we also have to remember that the return of the king is not good news for everybody. And so as we move to the next section of this parable, we will see that the unfaithful will be condemned. Let's pick up at verse 20 and read through verse 26. Another came, saying, Master, Here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minus. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minus already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So this third person comes to the nobleman. He returns the single mina which he had merely stored in a handkerchief and he began making excuses while simultaneously insulting the nobleman. He said, I didn't do anything with with your mina because I was afraid of you. And you are an exacting man, which means you are a harsh or a severe man. And then he makes this absolutely horrid claim that that you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not So, in other words, this servant was essentially accusing the nobleman of being unjust, which we've already seen is slanderous and blasphemy. We've already seen the character of this nobleman, who has awarded abundantly those who were faithful with just a little bit. 
This nobleman is not unjust. He is gracious. He is giving to the faithful far greater rewards than what they earned or what they deserved. And so what I think we are seeing with this third slave is that he did not actually believe that the nobleman would return. And the reason I believe that he did not believe the nobleman would return is based on how the nobleman responds to him. The nobleman basically tells the man that if what you say about me is true, that I'm harsh and strict, then then why didn't you, at a very minimum, put the mina in a bank so that I could have at least collected interest? If you were afraid of me, like you say, wouldn't that be the bare minimum thing to do? Maybe the rewards don't motivate you to action, but if you are as afraid of me as you claim, shouldn't the fear of retribution cause you to act? I believe that this third slave did not expect the nobleman to return. And so when the nobleman did return, he made excuses and began to blame the nobleman himself. And so in response, the nobleman takes his Mayan and he gives it to the one who is the most faithful. And we see some objections from the others, objections that seem to make sense. Why does the most faithful get the most reward? Or in other words, why does the richest get even richer? Well, let's again consider this from a business perspective. If I had been investing money in one mutual fund, nobody is going to cry foul if I move money to a better performing fund, even if it hurts the business that I'm pulling the money out of. And so from a business perspective, we have no problem with this. And so let's shift this now to a heavenly perspective. If we take this and we shift it to a heavenly perspective, we recognize that God's allocation of rewards to the faithful is simply a reflection of his grace. It's an undeserved reward. It's a demonstration of divine grace being showered upon the faithful. So the principle for us is clear. Faithfulness leads to an abundance of rewards. Conversely, inaction or disobedience prompts a question. What should Jesus do in response? What should the nobleman do in response? And as we look at this third slave, opinions vary widely. I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go on a little tangent here. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can all understand that and agree that Jesus is the nobleman and that the rebellious citizens are the world who hate and despise Jesus. And I think we can agree that the the slaves are disciples of Christ, but that causes an issue for us when we get to this third slave. And the issue magnifies when we realize that we don't actually see the outcome of this third servant. We see the faithful be rewarded, and in verse 27, which we haven't got to yet, we see the rebellious be slain, but we don't see the outcome of this third servant. And there are generally two views. First, we must recognize that this servant was given the same mina, or for us, the same gospel. And yes, we do see that mina be removed from him, but we also don't see this person be destroyed. And so we might be thinking about Paul's words to the church at Corinth when he, when he wrote, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And so I think it is in the realm of possibility that this man, that this third slave is ultimately saved, that he enters heaven, and yet he does not receive rewards or, or responsibilities that allow him to experience the glory of heaven to the degree that the faithful are allowed. I think that's in the realm of possibility. But I also think that view has some clear challenges. For one, this slave is called wicked by the nobleman. This is my biggest hurdle. If Jesus is the true nobleman, I have a hard time understanding how Jesus could use that specific term to describe a believer, even if it's in the context of a parable. And in addition, based on how this slave responds to the nobleman, it does not appear that the slave truly knows the nobleman. And so is the third slave saved or unsaved? I told Mike earlier, I, I listened to a couple of sermons on this, and, and one pastor came down hard saying he was saved, and the other one came down hard saying he was not saved, and I'm just going to say, I don't know. Um, I lean towards the third slave being unsaved. That's how I lean. In our world, for example, this could be a person who is active in the church but who is not but who is not does not actually have a saving relationship with Jesus. All that being said, what I do know is this. Our desire shouldn't be like that of the third slave. Our pursuit shouldn't be about avoiding condemnation, but rather our desire should be about faithfulness to the gospel. Because we love the king. And because we want to share and partake in his glory in his kingdom. The third slave treated the nobleman as a harsh master. But in reality, he was good and generous and gracious. Church, if you know Jesus to be good and generous and gracious, then you know that it is a privilege to live your life for him. So far we've seen... The faithful be rewarded, the unfaithful be condemned, and, and quickly and lastly we see that the rebels will be judged. Let's look at this final verse, verse 27. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This now is a challenging verse. It's a verse that forces us to consider the fate of those people who fail to recognize Jesus as king. So far in this parable, the nobleman is revealed to be good and gracious. And then we get to this verse, and we might start second-guessing ourselves and, and, and ask, did we get it wrong? This does seem harsh. This does seem severe. The nobleman says, slay them in my presence. This seems Heartless. Was the third slave actually correct? But I'm going to suggest that the point of this parable goes far deeper than what we're reading here in verse 27. I'm going to ask you to look at what comes next in the text. In verse 28, we see Jesus going to Jerusalem. And I also want you to recall why, Jesus, why Luke says Jesus gave this parable at this time. Verse 11 said it was because he was near Jerusalem. Jesus purposefully speaks these words through the nobleman 
to stir within us a contemplation about the gravity of sin and its consequences. It is a stark reminder of the fate awaiting those who reject Jesus as king. And to anyone who is not following Jesus, who is not following Jesus, I implore you to ponder the truth of this verse and to trust in what comes next. Because while this parable does highlight the damnation that awaits those who do not believe, what's more profound is what Jesus does next. In the parable, the nobleman slays the rebellious. But Jesus, who is the true nobleman, he reverses the script. He heads to Jerusalem fully aware of the fate that is before him. A fate where he chooses to be slaughtered on behalf of those who mock him. This act of of sacrificial love, it flips the narrative. It, It reveals the heart of a Savior who is willing to lay down his life for those who would believe in him. This pivots us to a fundamental truth that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. None of us are exempt from this universal plight. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, Jesus, in his unparalleled act of love and sacrifice, he accomplished what no one else could. At his incarnation, the sinless Son of God stepped into humanity's story. And in verse 10 of this chapter, in, in, the, in the verse right before this parable, we see the, the story of Zacchaeus being converted, but we read this verse in verse 10. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus, through his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection, he accomplished what we couldn't. He reconciled humanity to God. And his act of grace and his act of mercy, it not only forgave our sins, but it also offered the gift of eternal life to all who would believe in him. The person who who spoke these words of warning was soon to be a sacrificial offering himself. He was soon to be the Lamb of God slain for the world. And so, while those who do not believe must consider the gravity of their position, for those who trust in Jesus as King, there is no fear. There is no condemnation. Instead, for those who believe, the question becomes, what are we doing with what we have been given? We acknowledge that Jesus has been gone a long time. But he has received his kingdom, and he will come again. It's funny, the the longer I live, and I understand I've lived half the life that many of you have lived, but the longer I live, the more I mature, the, the more work I do for the kingdom, the more I recognize how little I have done and how little I can do when compared to how much he has done for me. I often grapple with the question of, of how do I measure up to all he has planned for me? And yet, the gospel speaks truth to that question as well. Despite my shortcomings, despite my failures, despite every opportunity I've screwed up, the gospel shines forth. It reminds me that my standing before God is not rooted in my actions, but in who Jesus is and in what he has accomplished. In this parable, we see God's acceptance 
not only of me, but of my imperfect, flawed, misaligned, misguided works that were nonetheless done in his name. He finds pleasure in those who are faithful, and he is eager to reward those who love and serve him. Now perhaps you are sitting here, and you have come to the realization that you are like the citizens in this story, and you are destined for damnation. I want you to know a few things. First, that realization was placed there by the Holy Spirit, and you should take it very seriously. Because if you have not trusted in the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ, you are destined for hell. But there is good news for you today. There is time right now for you to turn to him. Turning to Christ involves two essential components, repentance and belief. Repentance is a heartfelt recognition of your need of a Savior. It's a turning away from a life lived apart from God, living a life hostile to God. And with it is a desire to change. It's acknowledging sin, it's seeking forgiveness, it's turning towards God, and belief in Jesus goes hand in hand with repentance. It's not just acknowledging Jesus as a historical figure, but it is trusting in him as your Lord and as your Savior. It's it's accepting his sacrificial death on the cross as payment for your sins. It's relying on him for salvation. In simple terms, repentance is the turning away from sin, and the belief is turning towards Jesus in faith. So whether you've been distant or you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is an opportunity for you. Repent, turn away from sin, and believe in Jesus. Trust in him for salvation. This decision not only changes your eternal destiny, but it also begins a journey of faithful obedience and living for him. So if you've made that decision today, here's what I want you to do. Don't leave here without telling somebody. You can tell Pastor Mike or myself, or Pastor Kirk on your way out, tell the person sitting next to you. You can scan that QR code and let us know that way. Whatever you do, let us know in some way or another. We want to help you get on the right step in the Christian life. Church, we do not know when Jesus will return, but we do know this. We are one day closer today than we were yesterday. And you, and you living your life in faithful obedience to him, brings him much pleasure. Are you living your life in faithful obedience to him? Let's pray.